Please be seated. Part of reading Mark from the beginning is that I don't have to ask you to turn there. Hopefully with Bibles open, we are in Mark chapter 7. And the text that has been read to lead out our service will be our text as we enter into this time of considering God's Word. I want to remind you of a truth that you already know. I want to remind you of the grace of God. A truth that we can't not be reminded of enough. Let me remind you that there is no one beyond the reach of the grace of God. There is no location, there is no people, there is no ethnicity or tribe that cannot be reached by the grace of God. There is no wayward child or lost spouse that is outside the reach of the grace of God. When we read in Hebrews that Jesus saves to the uttermost, He saves those who have sinned to the uttermost. There is no one outside of the reach of the grace of God. And if you're anything like me, there's been times that you've doubted that reach. We've prayed for certain individuals, and whether or not we actually believe that prayer might happen, we might have doubted that. But I want to remind you as I remind myself, there is no one living today that is outside the reach of the grace of God. Those who have sinned to the uttermost. We must recognize that God is glorified in the salvation of those that might wear the superlative least likely to be saved. Once again, there is no one outside the reach of the grace of God. And for that, we should take comfort. And for that, we should pray. And for that, we should rejoice. And for that, we should trust in the grace of God. Well, I say all that because tonight we're going to enter into another profound episode concerning the life of Jesus. Someone who others might have thought is outside the reach of the grace of God. But we will see in this unlikely character, she is not outside the reach of the grace of God. So follow along with me here, picking up in verse 24. Let me give you some contextual background here. Jesus is now moving away from his ministry in Galilee. He will visit once again a little bit. But Mark chapter Mark really Mark one. I mean, there's the baptism of Jesus in the, in the Judean countryside, but after that, from Mark 1, as Jesus enters into Capernaum, preaching the kingdom of God, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when he calls his disciples, his first ones that literally jump out of a boat to come and swim over to him, he's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's walking through Capernaum. And from Mark chapter 1 verses 17 and onward up until this point, he's been in this region besides a quick voyage across the Sea of Galilee to save this man who walks among the tombs to commission him into a Gentile mission. Jesus has been in this geographical location and he's been ministering primarily almost totally to a Jewish population. 
He came to the children of Israel, to the house of God in that way. And so up until this point right here, that's been his location. Well, there's a scene shift here. The location is changing. And this is very important. And this is why Mark places this right where he does. In what he's seeking to communicate to his largely, remind you again, Gentile Romans are reading this letter. He's not writing to Jews. So this passage right here is of very strong importance to its original audience. And just by, uh, by, by, by nature of where we stand today, to us as a Gentile listening audience. And so the movement of Jesus is beginning here. And he, and he goes outside of what I would call the, the borders of Israel. Only on a small scale. But this is important for us to understand. He has just finished basically dismantling the system of Judaism and all the rights and wrongs about it. Verses 1 through 23. And now there's another thing that needs to be clear. Just because you don't belong to Abraham or because you are not a descendant of Abraham does not exclude you from the grace of God. So for Mark's audience to hear this, they're encouraged because they're not the children of Abraham. No, they're not Jews by birth. And so as they would hear this passage read, they would recognize that there is grace for them too. And so this is important for us to understand here by just literary background. But picking up in verse 24, I want you to notice the place in which Jesus travels to. It says, And from there, being the the region of Capernaum, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not anyone did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden Jesus again is moving on from Galilee he is moving beyond borders and it says that he's moved to the region of Tyre and Sidon if you were to go to the last book of your bible my favorite book of maps and you were to look at it and you were to notice where it is he's moved away from the sea of Galilee to the upper northwest to the, to the coast, off of the coast of the Mediterranean, in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, let me just give you a little background. This isn't a good place. This isn't a place of, of, of Yahweh worship. No, in fact, this is a central hub of paganism. It is believed that Baal worship, which polluted the northern kingdom of Israel, originated in Tyre. You remind, remind you of the prophets of Baal and Elisha and those stories. Well, it's in the northern kingdom of Israel right there. And this is believed to be the place where it began. Not only that, it's a merchant city, a merchant region. There's a lot of um, trade and traffic that's going on off the sea or, uh, or the Mediterranean Sea. By virtue of this, it is certainly a multicultural region outside of Jewish territory. So the exchanging of ideas. Paganism is running rampant in this place. We have to ask the question, why would Jesus go here of all places? Well, the answer that we see in verse 24, the answer is rest. Jesus ventured here, and this is about 20 miles, again, north of where he's been. Because we see here, as Mark records, he entered a house but didn't want to be known. Jesus is looking for rest. If you'd read the first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you ask the question, when does Jesus rest? When he goes up onto a mountain and then he comes and walks across a sea? 
Well, there's not much time for rest with Jesus. When he heals people all night at Peter's house and then rises early in the morning to go out and pray, there's not much rest for Jesus. Well, now we see that the Son of God is seeking rest. So he enters into this area. Yet there's another thing we notice here in verse 24. Even in outside territory, outside the borders of Israel, Jesus cannot be hidden. Jesus is recognizable. Even among the pagans, they recognize who he is. I think this is very important to note here that Mark is really, what he's communicating here is that the story of Jesus is not a Jewish myth made up by 12 men who got their fa- whose founder got killed and they needed to make up a story so that they didn't look stupid. Even among those that were not adherents to, 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 to Judaism, who are not looking for this Messiah from the very beginning, they recognize Jesus and they recognize his impact. He has a reputation that precedes him all around the region. Jesus is attested to and known even among Gentiles. Jesus cannot be hidden. So he goes to this place. And what do we see here occur in this place? Well, notice the problem that he faces in verses 25 and 26. Here's the problem of this account. Immediately a woman whose little daughter, verse 25, follow along, little daughter who had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. If we're following along in Mark's gospel, this sounds somewhat familiar, does it not? We remember there's an account where there's a little daughter, Jairus' daughter, and there's also a woman who has a discharge of blood. Well, now we have a woman with a daughter, and, and it sounds very similar of what's going on. And I want us to observe here in verse 25, observe the care of the mother. Observe the mother's care for her child. We are told that this woman had a little daughter. That's important to understand. She's a little girl. And she has an unclean spirit. Now, details aren't given. Mark doesn't give us the details of what this actually looks like or means. But if you were to flip over into chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, there's a boy with an unclean spirit. And Mark does give us the details of what happens to him. He's a mute. He throws himself down and he foams and he grinds his teeth. So this idea of this child who's been oppressed by an unclean spirit... It could be that she, too, is one who has these convulsions, who can't control herself. Something of that nature. What we need to know, most importantly, is she is not well. She is not in her right mind. She is not sober-minded. And she is in need of help. It's a sad thing when we see helpless children, is it not? Our hearts just want to go out to them. This mother is hurting for her daughter. And she heard of Jesus. This is the greatest day of her life. Of what's about to take place here. This is the greatest day in the life of that girl. This is nothing more than divine providence. The sovereignty of God in his goodness. Showing grace beyond borders. But I want you to observe not just the mother's care. But also the mother's posture. 
Similar, again, as Mark's listeners would have been hearing this read to them, they would have picked up again on Jairus, who goes to Jesus and falls at his feet. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. And then there's a woman with a discharge of blood who grabs the hem of his garment. And then as Jesus engages with her, she falls down to his feet prostrate before him. And once again, we see now, a second time a woman is falling down before Jesus. And she falls at his feet. We don't do this in our culture. We don't fall down at one another's feet. So what does this mean to us? What are we to understand about this woman's posture? Well, both with Jairus, the ruler of the, of the synagogue who fell down at Jesus' feet, he was one who recognized the authority of Jesus. But he was also filled with grief. He was also filled with worry. Same with this woman. Same with everyone that was falling at the feet of Jesus. They recognized that they were under him. And so what we notice of this woman's posture, she is submitting herself to Jesus. She knows of Jesus' power to heal. She had heard of him. She knows that Jesus can take what is unwell and make it well. And she is throwing herself out and saying, I am completely vulnerable. I submit myself to you. And I am desperate. So she approaches Jesus and falls at his feet. There's no pride in her. And we see in verse 26 the purpose for her falling at Jesus' feet and showing herself humble before Jesus the Christ. And I would argue here, verse 26 is the purpose of this whole account. It's actually not a story about healing, it's a story about a Gentile. The healing that comes in this account is an appendix in the last sentence of verse 30. But the main point that we want to see here that Mark puts all his time on is that she's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, and she's a dog, according to the words of Jesus. So understand this being the main point of Mark's writing here. This is the purpose. She's a Gentile. Syrophoenician by birth. What does he mean by this? It's just the location of that area it's Phoenicia in, in Syria versus the Phoenicia in, in uh, North Africa. So he's just trying to distinguish location here. It doesn't mean she has some sort of crazy disease. That's just a location. And so this is where she's from, from the surrounding area. She's a local to Tyre and Sidon in that region. That's what we need to understand here. But most importantly, it's that she did not belong to the covenant people of God. She did not belong to the lineage of Abraham. You wouldn't find this woman in the genealogies if you were to spend the time reading them. No, she would have no right. She is no heir to a promise. She's, for, she's a foreigner to the covenants. She's an outsider. She's unclean. Picking up on the defilement of the first of. of Chapter, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and then the defilement of what goes into a person, what comes out of a person. Well, she would be considered ethnically defiled, unclean, because she didn't belong. You notice here there's no mention of a husband. She doesn't come with her husband. It could be that she is a single mother caring for her sick and severely oppressed child. Let's just add that against her as well to the cultural norms of the day. 
Put it this way, she's an outcast. But what we need to understand here about this woman is she's also a hero. Cultural boundaries were were not going to stop her from what she knew she needed to do, from the opportunity that she saw right before her. So she shows herself to pay little attention to her ethnic, cultural, and possibly even family status. All the boundaries that would have prevented her from going before a Jewish man, just a simply Jewish man, not to mention who she believed he was. She knew she didn't belong, yet she came. Yet she came, throwing herself down before the feet of Jesus. And what we read here of her is she begged him. Let's not lose sight of this. She begged him, verse 26, to cast the demon out of her daughter. This wasn't one request. Jesus, could you do something nice for my little girl? She's begging. She's pleading. She's casting herself upon the mercy of Jesus. Down before him. No doubt this scene would have drawn attention. He's trying to go to a house for rest, and there's this beggar of a woman who doesn't belong to the people of God, who has a severely oppressed girl, and she's coming before Jesus, causing a scene here. I think there's something we can note of this, even at this point. Beggars are humble people, beggars are humble. Beggars are vulnerable. Beggars are desperate. And it is those that feel their need that beg. If this woman with, and this is something that struck me even this week as I was wrestling through this text, if this woman with her limited but true knowledge of Jesus would act in such a way, The question that came to me is, how much more us? How much more us, filled with the Holy Spirit, should beg God? Have we given up begging God in prayer? We pray, but do we beg? Do we beg for the salvation of our children or our grandchildren? She wasn't content with asking once. No, Brothers and sisters, I would look at this and submit to you, there are times that we need to storm the gates of heaven in our prayers. In our intercessory prayer, we must wrestle with God as Jacob did. We need to plead for holiness in our own lives. Healing in our relationships. Physical recovery to those that are hurting around us. Sometimes we're afraid to pray for physical healing because it might actually happen. This Syrophoenician woman stands as an example to us. She begged him. Now notice with me, she didn't stop there. Verses 27 and 28. She is a persistent mother, is she not? I am so thankful for her. Now, if the story ends right here, there's enough for us to chew on. There's enough for us to take away, to ponder, and to apply even to our lives. But it continues, and we see her persistence. So she comes begging, and Jesus responds with one of the 
hardest and trickiest statements, I think, that ever comes out of the mouth of Jesus. And he said to her, follow along, verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. One commentator, James Brooks, says concerning this passage, quote, The fact that the statement is unexpected is an argument for its authenticity. It is unlikely that the early church would have invented and attributed to Jesus a saying that could reflect adversely upon him. This statement right here, you can circle in your Bible, underline, highlight, and look at it as proof for the validity of the New Testament. Because if this was made up and through scribal additions and, 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 and trying to soften the edges, this would have been a, a statement that down the road they would have deleted. They would have tried to change it up to soften what Jesus says here. The corners are sharp on this one. This is a text for the authenticity of the New Testament, of Mark's writing here. So let's unpack what Jesus is saying here. We must understand this is, this is maybe uh, kind of parable, metaphorical in his statement. He's not talking about little ch- literal children and dogs. And he's, Let's unpack what he means here. What is he saying? Well, the Old Testament refers, the Old Testament oftentimes refers to the Jews as the children of God. I'm not going to have you turn to all these references, but in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we would read that Israel is my firstborn. Deuteronomy 14, 1, talking of Israel, that they are the sons of the Lord your God. Hosea 11, 1, we read, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the children that Jesus is speaking of here is he's talking about the Jews, the ethnic Israelites in this way. Okay, so then what is this bread that Jesus speaks of? Or this food? We must remember Jesus isn't talking literally here. He is responding to her pleading. He's not talking about something completely different. Well, some might think that this bread might be a reference to the manna in the wilderness, God's provision. Some have interpreted it to mean that. I don't think that is at all what Mark is getting at. Some might think that the word bread and food here is just used for illustrative purposes without any type of meaning or substance. I'm not sure that that's an accurate interpretation either. And I would argue here that what Jesus is talking about of the children being fed and the bread being thrown to dogs, Jesus is talking about his own personal ministry. We would read in John 4, 34, He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6, 34, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So I would argue here that the children are the Jews, and the bread is the the ministry of Jesus Christ. And basically what Jesus says here is let the Jews receive the ministry of Jesus first. But I want you to notice with me the word first. The word first only exists if there's a second. First isn't first if it's only. 
And I would argue that the Syrophoenician woman only heard the word first, and that's all she needed, because first implied a second. Let me get back to that, though. So we see it is, and then Jesus basically is saying, for it is not right for the ministry of the Messiah to be given over to the dogs. Here's the hard saying. What are the dogs? Now, the form of this word could mean little dogs, house dogs, not necessarily stray dogs in the wild. Nonetheless, the word means dogs. This is a challenging statement. Dogs are unclean animals to the Jews. They don't have pet Labradors walking around their house. That's not something in their culture that they would have whatsoever. They aren't domesticated animals for them. If you were to take your Bible, start in Genesis, and go all the way to Revelation, you will not find one single positive reference to dogs in the Bible. I like dogs, but you, the Bible never references dogs in a positive way. Even what was read this morning of Psalm 22, the dogs encompass me. Both David and Paul compare dogs with evildoers. So who are the dogs? Simply put, it's the Gentiles. That is the reference there. One commentator says of this, to refer to a human being as a dog is deliberately offensive or even dismissive. And so we ask Jesus, why is Jesus saying this to this woman? Jesus was using the terms of his day to show her the cultural social, and religious barriers between her and him. What Jesus is saying here to this woman is this. The ministry of the Messiah is for the Jew first and not for a Gentile like you. Well, you'd read Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek? Is Jesus dismissing her? Is Jesus saying, I don't want anything to do with you? No, we can't conclude that. That would be the one contrary thing through all of the testimony of the life of Jesus. But what Jesus is showing here is that his ministry was primarily to the house of Israel. First. But not only. And this account here, Mark is foreshadowing what is going to take place, especially as we see in the book of Acts, the Gentile mission to the ends of the earth. But as I said, the term first is all this persistent mother needed to hear. Observe her response. Verse 28. She said, yes, Lord. Let's not overlook that statement right there. She didn't go and say, you really just hurt my, my feelings. I feel very offended by you that you called me a dog. She looks at him and says, yes, Lord. Here's a note. Be someone that's hard to offend. Don't be easily offended. And she doesn't take what Jesus says offensively. No, because that was the cultural norms of their day. And she says, yes, Lord. And instead of f pushing back on what he said to her, 
She humbles herself even more and recognizes that Jesus is Lord. It's as though she is saying in her response to him, I'm not denying that I'm a dog. I'm not arguing about that. I know I don't belong. I don't deserve anything. But Jesus, you are good. And I've heard of your goodness. For your love for humanity, it is not based upon ethnic identity. Love and goodness are your nature, not just your actions. And this blessed statement comes from her. She pushes back. It's as though she just goes toe-to-toe. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What is she saying here? Jesus, I believe in grace beyond borders. For you to show grace to my little daughter is but crumbs. I don't need the whole meal. It's nothing for you, Jesus, to extend this grace. Your power is so infinite, it is but crumbs that I might receive under the table. Nothing is beneath me begging under the table like a dog waiting for crumbs to drop. I grew up with dogs. Um, We grew up with dogs that often got fed from the table. And so those dogs, if they ever get fed from the table, become beggars. And dogs are absolutely shameless when you think about it. They will, they will sit there and they will stare at you for the littlest crumb. Sometimes they will whine. Sometimes they will, I had one that would always throw his paw up on me. And he'd, he'd push him away and he'd turn around and he'd come back. He'd go around to each person and he'd find the weakest one. And wherever he found the weakest one, certainly that one was going to bring the food. And they would sit there under the table and whine and whine and whine. And the moment, the littlest crumb, boom, that thing shot like a dart. Beggars looking for just a crumb. And he was fine. He was satisfied if he got the crumbs from the table. And that's what she says. I'm just a beggar. I just want some grace for my daughter. I'm not asking for anything even of myself. I will humble myself. I will throw myself before you. I will admit I'm a dog. I don't belong. But could my daughter be healed? Oh, what a mother's love. We don't have dogs now. We have a lot of children. And we have a human vacuum cleaner that walks around. And anytime crumbs are dropped... It's one thing when a dog picks up the crumbs. It's another thing when your one-year-old is crawling around and picking up crumbs and you're saying, no, let's not do that. But even thinking about little Natalie eating anything that's under the table, kids are shameless too. Nonetheless, it was a picture in my own mind of thinking this woman of this woman. And so let's ask the question here as we see what's the result. Mark gives us the result here in the pronouncement from Jesus. Verses 29 and 30. He says, For this statement you may go your own way. The demon has left your daughter. For this statement, this is the demonstration of her faith, of her persistent faith. 
But always in Mark, we have to understand one of Mark's motifs and one of Mark's purposes in writing is that healings always represent something bigger. The, 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 the casting out of demons, the physical healings, all of those things are pointing to something greater in Mark's writing. All the healings within Mark are pointing towards salvation. This is a picture of Jesus' grace in saving the unlikely. It is grace beyond borders. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. I submit to you, as I have already said, this was the greatest day in both of their lives. No doubt, both the mother and the daughter were believers in Jesus Christ that day. So, what's the point here? What's the point that we can take away as we think about this these six verses here in Mark. As we think about this Syrophoenician woman, without mention of a husband, Gentile, with an oppressed daughter, there is grace for all who will come. Is that God's grace through Jesus Christ knows knows no bounds. Our upbringing or our ethical background, ethnical background, is not the determining factor for receiving grace from Jesus. All who come are welcome. So a few maybe points of application that we could make as we think about uh, these things here. I want to give you uh, three quick ones. First, I want you to recognize, as we know, that there is not an ethnicity in this world for whom Christ did not die. America is not the great melting pot. Heaven is. Let me remind you of the picture we see in heaven that John gives us in Revelation 7, verse 9. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. That's pretty encompassing of the globe. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, what did they all share in common? They were clothed in white robes. This is what brings them together, the robes of righteousness through Jesus Christ. With palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I cannot wait to join that heavenly chorus. I long for that day when the reverse of Babel will take place. And we will not be in all different languages, but we will speak that one heavenly language. Worthy is the Lamb. I long for that day. So, how should we think about that? We too should show grace beyond borders because we have received grace beyond borders. We are the dogs. But we also are one in Jesus Christ. Let us remember that. Second application we make from this text. Be persistent. Be persistent in prayer. As we learn from the Syrophoenician woman, be persistent in communion. Be persistent in worship. Be persistent in your life. She is an example to us. 
wrestle with God in prayer. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for the lost. Beg for the souls of those around you. Beg God for a desire to beg God for the souls of those around you. Be persistent. Some might call it annoying. Be persistent. You have never bothered God by praying too much. God has never felt, oh no, here comes Frank again. Do you know that at any given time in the world, how many people in one instant are praying to God? And he hears everyone's prayers. We cannot even imagine. Be persistent in your prayers. And third and finally, believe. Simple. Believe. Trust Jesus that he desires your good. He wasn't sending away that Syrophoenician. No, he went to Tyre and Sidon for this moment. Trust that Jesus desires your good. That God is not this tyrant sitting in heaven who says, I delight in heaping compounds of suffering and hardship upon you all the days of your life, and this I rejoice. Yes, we know trials and sufferings come our way in a sin-cursed world. We know trials and sufferings are, 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 are sent our way by the sovereignty of God to produce in us a Christ-likeness. But it's not that God is tyrannically sitting in heaven saying, I delight in your destruction. Our God is good. Yes, if through trials we must understand it is to grow us. Suffering trials and miseries come in this life. They are given or allowed by God to teach us, to grow us. But we need to understand that through difficulties, through this woman's difficulty with her child and what she had to go through, we must recognize that in these sufferings that we face, that our joy is to be deepened, our humility is to grow, our faith is to be strengthened, and our love for Jesus is to expand. If that's not happening, we're missing the point of trials and suffering. How do you think this woman felt when she got home? My love for Jesus is increasing because he delights to do good. Her faith in God increased. Do you think this story was kept to herself? She's a Syrophoenician missionary at this point. To that we are thankful. So she goes back into her pagan town and preaches the Messiah, shares the goodness of Jesus Christ. So, believer, I would encourage you to trust in the goodness of Jesus with whatever you are facing, for he delights in your good. And so let me remind you of how we started. There is not a shadow that grace cannot touch. There is no depth that grace does not plumb. Grace goes, the grace of God goes beyond borders, and this has always been the plan of God. As the promise was made to Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, that is realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all the families of the earth extends to all the earth. 
We are thankful some 2,000 years later in this far-removed land of America that we have received this grace beyond the borders of Israel too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth that we can take from this. We thank you for your goodness that you and your kindness has shown grace to us who are dogs, who are unclean, who deserve no good thing. But in your kindness and your providence, you have brought the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to bear upon our souls. And by the kind providence of your Holy Spirit have caused us to be born again to a living hope that we might apprehend by faith in repentance of our sins and walk in newness of life. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus Christ and the grace that he shows us each and every day of our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.